Hi, I'm Shelly. And I'm Nicole. And you're listening to the Baby Pro Podcast, where we talk about everything and anything related to pregnancy through the first year of your child's life. Every episode, we will discuss and interview experts on all the questions expectant and new parents want to know, such as creating the perfect birth plan, infant sleep, and tips and tricks for parenting a newborn. Welcome to the show. Hey, Nicole. Hey there, Shell. How are you? I always get so excited to see you. I know. Me too. I know it's still on Zoom. I know. I know. I know. Um, school starting soon. I know. That's what <sighs> my reaction is. Too. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Uh, yeah. I know. Back this to the grind. Is, yep. And this week we're talking with Parijat Deshpandi, and she is the author of um, Pregnancy Brain, a mind-body approach to stress management during a high-risk pregnancy. Oh, very good. Mm-hmm. She's a, high, a leading high-risk pregnancy expert. So good. Right, because I think there's um, there can be a lot of fear and unknown around that label. Like if you're labeled as huh? a high-risk pregnancy, so and sure. not too many uh, places to go look for resources. So yeah, I'm really excited about this interview. Excellent. But let's Sounds start good. with our favorite of the week. Want to go first or you want me to go first? Go ahead. Okay. My favorite of the week, and it's because I'm such a nerd, Rocket Book. Ah, tell me about it. So it's basically, it looks like it's made out of, it's a notebook with like paper, but it's not actual paper. It's a different material. Hmm. And you write on it using friction pens. And when you're done, you just spray it with water and it wipes away. What? Yeah. But before you you clean it um it has like these little symbols at the bottom of the page and you can assign each symbol to a different location so i have one symbol is assigned to my email another symbol is assigned to like my trello board um and then i have one another symbol assigned to my google drive so i would just mark the symbol where i want it to go and i take a picture of the page in my app and it creates it turns it into a pdf sends it to wherever you had marked it to go and you have the option of like transcribing your handwriting. So there's like a PDF of everything you wrote, but then there's also like a typed version of everything you wrote. Come on. Yeah. Because I went completely it. paperless, but I return, I retain information better if I write it. I just right. do. So the whole like past Visual. three years that I've been paperless, I've really struggled at like conferences because I've been typing notes, but I don't right. retain it as well. And I'm a visual learner. So I, when I was in school, I always liked using like multiple um, colors of pens and highlighters. So this way I get to write everything down in pretty colors and I retain it, but then I can, you know, yeah. upload it in my drive. So it's there and it's not like some notebook that I lose track of or whatever. I need that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I need just, that in my like, life. I just bought like highlighters too that are compatible with it. Love it. And they're local. They're, it's a Massachusetts company. Love it. I would I love to get the link of that. Yeah, I will definitely put that in the, sh- the show notes. I'm such a nerd. <laughs> Excellent. What's your favorite of the week? Well, my daughters have me really dig in putting oat milk or oat creamer in coffee versus dairy creamer Mm -hmm. and oh my goodness I was initially thinking oh I don't think I like that it is so good and creamy in coffee and instead of regular sugar or 
you know, crap fake stuff. Cause I do like get a little, not, I don't like sweet, sweet coffee, but I like a little something to soften the bitterness. And um, so oat milk with combined with a little brown sugar or raw sugar. Ooh. Holy cow. It's totally different. It's so it's coffee, but it's, it feels like you're having a treat. It's so nice. And it's oh. so much healthier than just putting dairy and white sugar in it. You know, mm-hmm. you can do the raw sugar and oat milk. Mm. Yeah. So this is something you can order at like Starbucks. And stuff. Yep, you can. Yep, you can that order it anywhere. So good. Yep. So we've been buying the Chobani, I think, oat milk and um, doing it at home too, if we're not ordering out. And oh, goodness gracious, delicious. Mm. Something I never would expect myself to like. Right. I'm right. pretty much like standard. And this is like really good. Mm-hmm. Try it. I've been spending like way more money than I care to admit at Starbucks lately. I feel like like maybe the past month and a half, I was like moving away from caffeine. And then I find myself like, back back but I had asked because, because I try to stay like not keto, but low carb. Right. Um, so I had asked on my stories, like maybe a month ago, I was like, cause I usually got like a, a latte with some stevia and almond milk. I like almond milk. Mm-hmm. But I was like getting tired of the same drink. So I asked and someone recommended a cold brew light on the ice, a grande cold brew light on the ice, heavy cream and three pumps of sugar-free vanilla. Oh my God. It is really? so good. Yes. <laughs> so good. So good. Yeah. Nice. It's really good. So that would be one that you can try too. Yeah, I definitely yeah. will. Oh, I, I look forward to something like that sometimes. Like it's like, can be like the treat for me that. Just feels like I did something for myself. I guess something delicious. I get excited about it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yummy. Mm. I could talk about coffee all day. <laughs> but instead, we'll go to our question of the week. Yes. So this week's question is, I lost power. And can my frozen breast milk be saved? Oof. Well, I guess it depends on how long your power is going to go for. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh. So if you, if you lose power, don't open your freezer. Um, and a cold freezer that's like full, I believe can probably keep the milk good for 48 hours. Mm-hmm. But when you get your power back on, check your milk bags. And if you still see crystals in them, that's still considered frozen and you can keep it in the freezer. Good. But if you don't see any crystals, that is completely thawed and you, you'd have to use it up as soon as you could. Yeah, yeah unfortunately. Yeah. Yep. And if you'd spent, you know, if you lost power for a while, but you're access to like a cooler with some ice packs or ice, you can also, if you feel like your freezer is not cold enough anymore, throw it in there and that it's good in there for like 24 hours too. Yeah. Very but, helpful. Um, that won't make you cry if you lose a whole bunch of milk. I know. Oh, I know. What's that? I know. What's that saying? People who said don't cry ever spilled milk never never pumped, pumped it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You're crying over an ounce lost. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. All right. Well, that was a great question. And next up, yes. we are talking with our guest. Excellent. Hey everyone, I just wanted to chat with you a little bit about one of the biggest obstacles that I see expecting and new families facing when they're having a baby, and that's lack of support and community. I know that having a baby can be overwhelming. There's so many resources out there. Some of them are better than others. You never quite know if you're getting the most updated evidence-based information, and also there's the lack of support. 
So that's why I created the Baby Pro Bistro. You can join the Baby Pro Bistro and get monthly support before and after your baby arrives. The Baby Pro Bistro provides you with all your prenatal and new parenting needs. So when you join, you get the prenatal childbirth education class, the prenatal breastfeeding class, the prenatal newborn care class, and the prenatal infant sleep education. You also get postpartum information like a starting solace webinar, community support, and expert speakers who talk on various subjects such as infant massage and pelvic floor health. This week, I am so excited to announce our guest, Parija Tishpare, and she is a leading high-risk pregnancy expert, mind-body health specialist, and author of Pregnancy Brain, a mind-body approach to stress management during a high-risk pregnancy. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's so nice to speak with you, Shelley. Sure. This is such an important topic. I get this question a lot from like families. If they find out that they've been put in the high risk category of pregnancy, they're like, how is that going to affect my pregnancy? How is it going to affect my delivery? Um, and what are some things that I need to be aware of going into this journey? And I feel like it's not spoken about enough. Agreed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm Barija Deshpande, and um, I work with women who are trying to conceive or are pregnant after late-term loss or preterm delivery. And basically I teach them neurobiological approaches and somatic approaches to healing to help them actually improve their pregnancy outcomes in their subsequent pregnancies. And that work that I do is fully inspired by my own personal experience of having been the patient myself, having gone Mm -hmm. through infertility and multiple losses and a very high-risk pregnancy and an extremely preterm delivery and really experiencing personally where the gaps are in the medical system and the medical care, even as wonderful as it is where we are, there's still significant gaps in for patients in terms of being able to optimize our pregnancy outcomes and just recognizing how important it is for us as patients, as women to be able to access the supports that we've got neurobiologically, literally built into our bodies to help us, uh, optimize our outcomes by, you know, working with the medical treatment that we may need. So it's not necessarily an either or situation in mm-hmm. cases like mine, it's, it's both, we need both. And that's really when we can um, see the best outcomes possible. And so it was the very preterm delivery of my son that really just opened my eyes to needing and wanting to do this work to help more and more women stay pregnant, especially those who are considered high risk. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And like I said, so needed. Um, there's, I think there's a lot, unless you're pregnant and in that journey, I think you don't realize how many women actually have pregnancy losses, um, because no one ever wants to talk about it. Although I feel like we're shifting a little bit in the right direction. I think people are more open about talking about it too. Right. Um, so a lot of times women who are going through a loss, they often feel isolated and alone and not understood. And that of course, doesn't help if you become pregnant again, because you haven't processed anything. You haven't done any of that. You haven't had a chance to. Right. Absolutely. And there's this strange narrative that, well, Hey, you're pregnant again. So that loss is gone. It's not mm. a, it's not a thing anymore. Cause now you have a baby you're growing and it's just this bizarre expectation that 
one life could replace another right. when that's absolutely not the experience whatsoever for the person, for their partner, for their families, possibly, uh, that we need to be able to hold both, that we can be happy and grateful and hopeful about of this new life and still be grieving the loss uh, mm-hmm. of the one or ones prior to that. Mm-hmm. I've been having a lot of conversations with that regarding birth trauma too, yep. where, you know, if, if someone is suffering from birth trauma and people just say to them, well, you know, you should be happy and grateful your baby's alive. Yep. And I don't understand this idea that you that people seem to think you can't have more than one emotion at once. Like you can be happy and grateful that your baby is is alive and still feel traumatized by what happened. Yes, that's exactly it. I work a lot with um, birth trauma, pregnancy trauma, medical trauma, all of that, that comes with uh, this complicated journey. And you're absolutely right Mm -hmm. that there's a complexity to that experience And there's a complexity to the ripple effects that last afterwards. Mm -hmm. And therefore there needs to be a place to acknowledge those nuances that multiple truths can exist at the same time. Right. I cannot imagine the feeling of guilt that must come over parents when they're told like, you should be happy your baby is Mm. alive. Because if you haven't had time to process those feelings, then you feel, you feel the trauma from your previous loss of previous birth. But now you are supposed to feel guilty that you're not completely happy that your baby is alive or the better. So it's, it's really just not doing anyone any favors. It's really not. Even though it's said with like, I think the intentions behind it are good. It's just not helping. No, it's not. And it perpetuates the idea that the circumstances are what create and perpetuate trauma. Mm -hmm. When we know that that is not at all true, you can have a low risk pregnancy, relatively, you know, simple delivery experience, you know, let's say as perfectly as possible, meaning on your estimated due date, you're right at 40 weeks. I mean, on paper, it looks perfect. And you can still experience that labor delivery birth process as traumatic because it has nothing to do with the circumstances, it has everything to do with how safe you feel in your body in that time. And if you are able to restore safety again after. And so when we hear those kinds of comments of, well, you should be happy the baby's here. Well, yeah baby is here, but baby being here doesn't determine whether my experience was traumatic or not. Correct. Yeah. 100%. And I remember as a doula, I would witness things being done to birthing parents that if they had been done to me, I would have considered traumatic. Sure. But, you know, sometimes these parents were really happy with how their birth went. So that really just, and it wasn't my job to like ruin that for them by saying like, you yeah. know, this shouldn't have happened or it should have, yes. could have been done a different way. Yes. You have to let people experience their experiences in their way. Yeah. And there's no way for us on the outside to ever know what that, that physiological experience and that reaction is happening for that person. There's no way for us to know. Mm-hmm. And so what we could, the best that we can do as anybody, whether it's you, you're a loved one, you're a provider, you're a practitioner, anybody is to hold that space and with complete non-judgment and say, mm-hmm. you know, what was that like for you? What are you, what do you, you know, what would, would you like to share? What was that experience like for you? And if they come back and they say, well, that was really traumatic, or I think, I think that might've been traumatic. I'm not sure. Even if they're not certain, mm-hmm. it's our job to hold that and to mm-hmm. honor that and to really trust them because they know. 
because it's, you know, we know our bodies, we know that experience. We know we've all, I think been unfortunately in situations where we leave that experience and we go, that didn't, that didn't feel right. That Mm -hmm. I don't think that should have happened. Right. Uh, or any number of experiences like that. And it doesn't have to be an intervention of some kind. It could just be a conversation that you had with your medical provider, for example, and you leave feeling awful, like some, something didn't feel safe to me in that moment. That in and of itself is what triggers a traumatic experience. That's all it is. It's a lack of safety that you don't get to restore again. That's mm-hmm. all traumatic stress is. And so I think it's important to highlight then that nobody on the outside knows what that is. It is completely determined by how that person felt in that moment. And if that person says that was traumatic, there's nothing to do but to accept that and to honor that and respect that. Right. Right. And each person will come to that that decision on their own timeline. Yep. Some people don't realize that what they experienced was traumatic to them until years later when yep. they like have had time to process it and think about it and say, wait a minute, that actually was not a good thing that yes. happened to me. Yes. You know, I agreed. Happened too. Yeah, exactly. I, let's, let's um, take a step back for a second and let's define what a high-risk pregnancy is in case anyone sure. doesn't know. Yeah, I think that's a gr- such a great question, I think, to ask um, and to talk about because you hear the term high-risk pregnancy and it's like alarms go off. A lot of people who email consistently going, I was just diagnosed high-risk. What does that mean? Because it sounds so awful and terrible and it doesn't actually have to be. So I think it's, um, I appreciate that we're talking about this because high-risk pregnancy, that that label, so to speak, is really just saying that you or and or your baby are at risk of developing complications. It doesn't mean that for sure it will happen. It doesn't mean that for sure you will deliver preterm or for sure something is going to go wrong with your health or baby's health or anything like that. It just means you're probably going to need some extra eyes for some portion of your pregnancy. For some people, it's you know a couple months and then you may be discharged back to your regular OB. And for others, it may be for the duration of your pregnancy. It really varies. And it varies often based on what makes you high risk, what what gave you, quote unquote, gave you that label. So in the United States, for example, being over the age of 35 automatically makes you high risk because there are potential complications for you as well as for baby that are much more likely to happen after the age of 35 than before. Again, does not mean that they will happen, but that you're going to have some extra eyes watching out for that. But there are also other reasons why you might be high risk. For example, you're carrying multiples, twins, triplets, higher order multiples. Uh, If you have a history of certain health complications like autoimmune diseases, cancer, asthma, I finally started seeing my clients with, um, working with providers who are even considering depression and some mental health issues as uh, risk factors, which I'm like, thank you, finally. (laughs) Um, So there are multiple, you know, kidney disease, uh, cardiovascular disease, respiratory illnesses, or, um, you know, chronic health issues. A lot of those things can put you at risk for complications. And so then you might be considered high risk. And sometimes, you know, if you're listening to this, you're like, well, I'm not 35 and I don't have any of these health issues then you may become high risk during your pregnancy if 
So if some tests or your doctor finds some complications are arising or are kind of on the cusp of arising during your pregnancy, and they can be complications for you or baby or both. And again, all that means is you're going to need some extra monitoring. Uh, sometimes it's done by your OB specifically, and they can handle it on their own, depending on what's going on. And sometimes they'll refer you to a perinatologist, which another word for them is a high-risk OB or a maternal fetal medicine specialist. And their job is to work with high-risk pregnancies. That's their specialty. And so you may go there maybe for a consultation, or like I said, you may see them for any number of times for the duration of the pregnancy or anything in between. But if there's one thing you take away as you're listening to this is high-risk pregnancy does not mean there's a particular outcome that's for sure going to happen. It just means you are at risk of complications and that you're just going to need some extra monitoring to see how this plays out and the kinds of supports you'll need to help you stay pregnant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love that you pointed out that it's not always um, because of a maternal factor, that it mm-hmm. can be because of the baby too. Absolutely. So yeah, if you're going into your pregnancy thinking, oh, I don't fit in any of those categories, it could still happen. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And other than like extra monitoring, is there any other way that um, a high risk pregnancy might change how you're planning on delivering and going into your birth? Yeah. Great question. So depending on what's going on and what is making you high risk, Um, you may not have certain options available in terms of labor and delivery. So for example, you may, if you're working with a midwife who's not associated with a maternal fetal medicine practice, they may not be able to continue to see you beyond the regular OB visits. And so you may be transferred to a different office or a different clinic or to an MFM directly, something like that. I late, actually in the last year, I've worked with several clients whose MFM offices have midwives in them. And I just think that's the most fantastic partnership ever. Mm -hmm. You get the midwifery experience inside the high risk kind of clinic, um, which I think has worked beautifully for them so far. So I'm hopeful that we'll get to see more of that more frequently. Um, but things like, you know, de- again, depending on what's going on, you, if you'd planned on maybe home birthing or birthing in a birthing center, for example, they may not be options anymore because it may not be safe for you or baby or both to be able to do that. And so as you get closer to, I typically say like the beginning of the third trimester is a great place to start asking these questions of, you know, what are my options? Are there some that we you know, should take off the list. Are there ones that we can still consider and maybe find a hybrid option of, because, you know, this one thing was really important to me, for example, laboring in water was really important to me. Can we do that in the hospital setting? If I have to be in the hospital and finding some middle ground in between. Um, so it's definitely not black or white, but Mm -hmm. it is, I think, important to have that discussion with your providers early and, um, and review what your options are given the circumstances of your pregnancy by that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so true. And I think it's important that providers on their end, listen to what the parents original goals were and be willing to work with them to find some kind of middle ground. Yeah. Um, like, okay, you know, you can you you're and you're going to end up having to have a C-section, but maybe we can do a family centered C-section or something. Yeah, like yeah. absolutely. Absolutely agree. Mm-hmm. So if you are in a high risk pregnancy, Um, especially after like a previous loss, how does that affect like your mental health and how you mentally approach the pregnancy and the delivery? 
Yeah. So uh, what I am seeing is people who have experienced losses. So as I mentioned earlier, my clients typically have experienced late term losses. So somewhere in the second or third trimester or at term and, um, or they've experienced preterm delivery. Some of them have gone on to experience neonatal loss. And what I find is the level of what they describe it as is they're very anxious about being pregnant again. Now, my background uh, professionally is uh, began in clinical psychology. And so I was in the mental health field and I actually left that field to do this integrative neurobiological work because I felt that the mental health field is missing a lot, just like the medical field misses a lot. And so um, when I hear your question, what I think about is it's not actually a mental health thing that's affecting them. It's a whole body thing that's affected them because when we're living with trauma, trauma is not a mental health issue. It is a whole body issue because it is built in and, and rooted in our nervous system and our entire bodies. And our nervous system is the only system that touches every single other system in our body. And so when we are dealing with, uh, when somebody say comes to me and says, I'm really terrified, I'm terrified of that, you know, getting pregnant again, but I really want to have another baby, but I'm terrified that the same thing is going to happen again, or something worse is going to happen again. To me, what that tells me is not that there's a mental health issue. What that tells me is she doesn't feel safe to be pregnant. And so our work has to be focused on not how to make her think about pregnancy being safe again, but how to experience pregnancy being safe again. And we can't do that if we don't feel safe before pregnancy first. Mm -hmm. And so that's why um, I love working with people long-term because we can start our work pre-pregnancy and really get that nervous system re, uh, re-regulated from everything that's happened before. And that's, that's a lot of the effective trauma healing from a body-based perspective. And then we can kind of build on that, um, to help her experience pregnancy from a safe place as well. And so I I think to, to answer your question is the experience of it is very terrifying and it is also a whole body experience. And so there's probably, when I hear somebody say, I'm scared of being pregnant again, I'm also looking at what other ways is your body showing that? And we can see that sometimes, and, you know, they've developed a a chronic, uh, pain or chronic illness of some kind. I see autoimmune diseases show up a lot in NICU moms who are trying to get pregnant again. They develop that afterwards, um, things like that. Like, okay, where, what is your body telling us that it needs to get back to feeling safe again? And all of that kind of falls under that umbrella of, of the trauma and healing somatic work that I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such a good point that our mind and our body are so intertwined and connected that you can't experience something in just one of them yeah. without having to affect the other. Exactly. Exactly. And if you haven't processed those feelings of trauma, I imagine it can cause things like high blood pressure and pregnancy and things like that. Um, it can. It can. And I really um want to highlight that it's not because you're doing something to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it can get very easily, there's an easy leap to make of, oh my gosh, well, I'm causing my high blood pressure. Um, it's not you, you're not doing that. What's happening is, as I mentioned before, that, that traumatic stress that you're living with has altered your nervous system, which has changed every other body system to function in the emergency state. And in that emergency state, we do need elevated blood pressure because we need to be able to move to, to fight or to run. Uh, we need that. We need those changes. Um, where this kind of applies in pregnancy is that 
we know for a healthy pregnancy, whether it's high risk, low risk, doesn't matter, is we need a very particular balance of the nervous system, the endocrine system for, you know, for hormones and the immune system where we see a lot of inflammation issues come up when there's an imbalance there. Those three systems have to be in a very particular balance to have a healthy pregnancy. And that balance is different than the balance it's in pre-pregnancy. So it, there is a shift, but it's got to shift in a very particular way. And you can imagine then we've been talking about traumatic stress. Um, the nervous system is altered and therefore the other two are altered too. And that's what puts us at risk for pregnancy complications is if you imagine like a three-legged stool, one stool, like maybe the, the leg shortened a little, it's going to affect the whole stool. And that's how that happens. So it's not by choice. You're not doing anything wrong. It's your body is doing what it needs to do to handle the fact that it thinks you're still in danger. Mm -hmm. And one of those ways that it shows up in pregnancy is an increased risk of many different kinds of complications. Right. Right. Your body is doing the right thing. It's just not doing it for the right reasons, you know? Yeah. It, it thinks that you're still in danger. That's what right. traumatic stress is, right? Like we're frozen in that state of danger. So it's and given that it thinks you. that it's trying to protect you, that's exactly right. And so it's doing everything that it's supposed to do, given that it thinks you're still in danger. And that's where that whole sense of safety comes back is it's not an emotional state. It's actually a physiological state. Can we now readjust that stool so that it's in the balance? Those three legs are in the balance that we need to be able to support a healthy pregnancy. So true. And I love that you approach it from both ends because your, your OB is going to pay attention to the physical symptoms, but they don't have the training or the time to help you with the psychological symptoms. Um, and then if you of course go see a traditional like psychologist or something, most of them, I imagine you can correct me if I'm wrong, but would just address like the psychological symptoms. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's exactly what, honestly, that's what encouraged me to leave the, the field is, is the, that it felt very siloed, just like the medical field felt. And I said, okay, well, so now we're just working in parallel, but nobody's talking to each other, which I didn't appreciate. And the other piece was, um, I think it's just too much um, over pathologizing of what's going on. I, I much prefer teaching my clients and having conversations like this of showing actually your body's doing what it's supposed to do given that it thinks you're still in danger, that's all trauma is. You're not broken. There's nothing wrong with you. Mm -hmm. And so approaching it from a place of let's, let's help shift your body as opposed to let's fix your body. Cause there's nothing wrong. There's nothing broken. I find that to be so much more empowering. And I, I truly honestly wouldn't have thought of that had I not been the patient myself and just gotten really tired mm -hmm. of being constantly diagnosed with something or the other and something or the other. And I just went, is there anything going right right now? <laughs> like, I just feel like I'm breaking down. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I appreciate you calling that, that out, that there is a lot of power in addressing both sides instead of having two separate silos working. Mm -hmm. And I think that can be applied to any aspect of our lives too. You know, as a lactation consultant and a sleep coach, I've learned, I'm not, I'm not an expert by far, but I've learned a lot about like why babies do what they do and how they regulate and how they're co-regulators yeah. that they can't really regulate on their own at first. And so, you know, there, it has changed the way I approach my consults with families where I do pay attention to how the baby reacts to movement and how the parents react to the baby when trying to calm them and how calm the parents are. Yeah. And in fact, one of my, um, 
questions when I'm asking parent for sleep coaching is like, you know, are you stressed? Are you regulated? Do you have, are you getting enough sleep? Do you have a, a good bedtime routine? Things like that. Totally. Totally. It's kind of similar. It is exactly. And so I imagine you probably see too, that when there is something that's happened that the birthing person has experienced as traumatic, it impacts the family because certainly if there's a partner, they're trying to co-regulate and that's not happening. And then there's a difficulty in not only attachment and bonding with baby, but also that co-regulation piece that you talked about, which is developmentally necessary Mm -hmm. for, for babies for quite some time. Right. Right. The best thing is to help a baby regulate is to have a calm regulated parent to show them. And no, but not enough people are talking about this. I feel like it's slowly becoming more known, but still, I feel like not enough people are talking about this. Yeah, I agree. I, I wonder if, if some of it is because to regulate sounds really hard Mm -hmm. and to try to calm down, which is not the same as regulation, um, sounds a lot easier to do, right? I'll just take some deep breaths. I'll just go lie down for five minutes. Um, which works great if you're experiencing acute stress, like absolutely really great strategies. But when we're talking about chronic or traumatic stress, they're not going to do anything. Mm -hmm. And that, I wonder if that feels very overwhelming to think about, oh my gosh, what do I have to do now? After all the things I've been through now I have to do more. And, and that's where I really like to, to tell people, you know, you don't have to do more. Oftentimes it's doing less. And what we want to do is actually target what you're doing to what your body actually needs. And I think you bring up a great point that, especially in that newborn phase, and really, I mean, at any point, the way that I work as well is let's get the basics down first. If you're dehydrated, if you're not sleeping well, if you're nutrient deficient, your body's going to think that you're in danger. Mm -hmm. And so let's get the basics down first and let's see what we can address from there. And then we know what's left from before it. And that doesn't feel as overwhelming. I find. Yep. I 100% agree. Um, there have been many, many times where I've walked into a house and I've been and seen what I call a sleep emergency where I'm there to help them with breastfeeding, but the mom is so exhausted, hasn't been sleeping, um, can't really function. And it's like, we're not even going to work on breastfeeding right now. What we're going to do is have you pump and put you to bed and let you sleep a good four hour chunk and your baby will be fine. We'll feed, you know, and yes. you, you can't, if you're that exhausted, exhausted and overwhelmed and stressed, and you're not regulated yourself. How are you going to learn a new skill? Yeah. If absolutely. your body's telling you that you're in danger or your body's telling you that you are at the edge of your rope, you're not going to be able to learn anything. Yeah, absolutely. And there's physiological impacts to that too, because you'll start to see you'll produce less milk. Mm -hmm. And I remember learning that for the very first time when my son was in the NICU and a neonatologist mentioned that to me, it wasn't even a lactation consult. I hadn't seen one yet. I don't think. And she came by and she mentioned to me and she said, if you don't sleep and if you don't eat, and if you are stressed out, which is a whole different conversation about the language she used about that, but that's, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're not going to produce milk. Yep. And I remember at first being really angry about that. I'm going, come on, I just want to do something for my baby. And I actually had to step back and really relearn Like my body is going to prioritize me and my safety first mm-hmm. and milk production comes second. And so if it's really important to me to produce that milk, I 
have to go to sleep or I have to take a step, a break out of the unit and go eat something or whatever Mm -hmm. that is. Um, Stay hydrated, for example, and really work on what is happening in my nervous system and in my body that is keeping me in this survival state. And how do I get out of that, even in the NICU, for example? And then certainly when you're at home too, it's so, so important that these basic needs be met. Otherwise your body is going to continue to think that you're in danger and it's going to deprioritize things that don't keep you alive and only prioritize the things that keep you alive and safe. 100%. Yep. I see that all the time when I work once a month in an acute and it's Mm -hmm. very prevalent. And sometimes it's a lot of like, don't stare at the bottles when you're pumping and like willing more milk to like, I know baby socks on the bottles, distract yourself, watch something on Netflix that makes you happy, then take a nap and make sure you're eating, drinking. Yeah, I know. And I I know how counterintuitive that feels mm -hmm. as a NICU parent. And I also know how necessary it is now. Mm -hmm. Uh, You just have to, if, if pumping is part of your plan, um, it's yeah, it's, I really recognize that dichotomy of, but I just want to do more and right. and everybody telling you, you got to do less. <laughs> right. And part of it, I, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but part of it I feel is when your baby's in the NICU, it, it can give you a very helpless feeling. Yes. And so for some parents doing everything they can with like milk supply or whatnot, yep. just helps them feel like they're doing something. Yes, like They're doing exactly. everything they can for their baby. And yeah, sometimes it is hard to explain like, yeah, you need to take a step back and take care of yourself too. Yeah. And it, it is, I, I absolutely agree with that. There's such a helpless feeling. I know personally, that was a feeling I had is I couldn't stay pregnant. So at the very least, let me at least produce milk for him. Mm-hmm. And, um, and to anybody that's listening, I actually had a very low supply anyway, regardless of everything that I did, which I know is very common for, for extremely preterm births too. But, um, it, it was just like, you become fixated on that one thing that you want to do. And I really want to highlight that that in and of itself can be a trauma response mm-hmm. is to become so hyper-focused on this one thing and put so much pressure on it because it's the only thing you can do that we, we, and I speak from experience in saying that I even couldn't see how many other ways I could help him. And that drinking that water, taking that break from the unit to go get some fresh air outside or getting some sleep at night was actually helpful to him. Mm-hmm. And it was very difficult to see. And I think that's why so much of this work is so important to do, especially early on so that you have this this um, experience of what does my body feel like in safety, in that safe mode? How do I bring that back now that I'm in the NICU? Because I know that's what I need to be able to make these really difficult decisions that you might have to make with your baby and be able to take care of yourself so you can produce that milk if you if that's what your plan is. Uh, to be able to do that, it's not a skill you can learn in the NICU. It's something that we've got to learn ahead of time so that we can rely on it like any other muscle memory that we have, because we're not thinking in that, in that space, when we're in survival mode, we can't physiologically, we just cannot think as effectively. And so if it becomes that muscle memory, that's a lot easier to rely on. Right. hundred percent. And I think it's also important to take these steps, even if you feel okay. Like, even if you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't really feel stress. My blood pressure is fine. Everything seems fine. Um, sometimes it just really sneaks up on you. Yeah. Out of nowhere. So yeah. I had, um, like I had a second trimester loss as well. Oh, and I when, didn't know that. sorry. 
um, thank you. And then when I got pregnant with my rainbow baby, I, it didn't take long for me to get pregnant again. I remember feeling that I had grieved and that I was done with the grieving process and that I was okay. And through the whole trimester, I felt great. I didn't feel stressed. I didn't feel nervous. People who were close to me um, and loved me enough to reach out and check in on me were like, are you feeling okay? Is, are you finding this like stressful? And I was like, no, I feel fine. I don't feel anxious at all until I hit the week of gestation where I had lost my first, my yeah. previous baby. And then all of a sudden, like all these feelings of anxiety came and hit me out of nowhere. Yep. And I remember calling my midwife, like freaking out. And she was so kind. She came to my house with the Doppler and she looked and we found the heartbeat and she's like, there's the heartbeat. And she gave like my belly a kiss and I just burst into tears. And I'm so thankful that I had her as a provider at that time where she was willing to go so far out of her way to give me that reassurance and that understanding where she knew what I was experiencing and was willing to help me process that in her yeah. in the way that she could. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. I hear experiences like that all the time, all the time. I can't even tell you. I feel fine. Everything's fine. And it's literally that same gestational age mm-hmm. that, um, I often hear people when at the beginning, when, before we start working together going, well, I just want to make it past whatever that date is 19 weeks, 24 weeks, 32 weeks, whatever that is for them, that, that marker and I'll be fine. Right. And they want me to tell them yes. And I go, yes, you'll be relieved. But the other side of that is then you're going to be in uncharted territory. And that's going to bring up a whole new layer of something that you can't access right now. And that's why our work together is through the whole pregnancy is because there, there's, there are so many layers to this and we may know some of them. We may know, okay, I know, you know, the 12 week mark is going to be a hard one for me or 16 weeks is going to be hard for me, but there are others that we can't predict until you experience it because it's not just about the gestational age. It's about literally the body memory of being pregnant that far along, what that feels like, what does your belly feel like? What do your hips feel like? How your feet feel all these things that we can't think through, but our body remembers and Mm -hmm. goes, Oh, remember last time this is now dangerous. And it just Mm -hmm. switches on like a light switch. Exactly. As you described. Yeah. And sometimes it cannot even show up until the actual birth. Yep. Totally. All sorts of emotions come up. And all sorts of emotions and yes. past memories and yes. such like a hormonal and emotional event. It is exactly, exactly. Well, I think that the work that you're doing is amazing and not to offend you, but I'm glad that you left your previous field. <laughs> <laughs> no offense taken. <laughs> Thank you. Where is your book available? It's available on Amazon uh, as paperback or Kindle. Mm -hmm. It is also available on barnesandnoble.com. You can also request it from any independent bookstore or your library. Great. And again, the name of the book is Pregnancy Brain, a mind-body approach to stress management during a high-risk pregnancy. Um, I cannot wait to get my hands on that book and read it. Thank Um, you. And where can people find you if they want to connect with you and reach out to you? Yeah. So you can head over to my website, which is my full name.com barijatdeshpande.com. Or I also hang out on Instagram and my handle there is healthy.highriskpregnancy. So you can head over there, 
come by, say hi, let me know that we met on Shelly's podcast. And um, I'm happy to chat with you over there as well. Perfect. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you being with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us this week on the Baby Pro Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, ShellyTaffIBCLC.com, where you can check out our online parenting community, The Baby Bistro. You can also follow us on social media at ShellyTaffIBCLC on Instagram. If you love the show, please leave a rating on iTunes so that we can continue to bring you amazing episodes. Thanks for listening and see you in two weeks.